When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Over the line! Hello and welcome to another episode of Over Under Movies, the podcast in which we talk about one overrated and one underrated movie within the same genre, style, tone, or however we see fit. This is Oktayege Kozak. And I'm Ryan Oliver. So in this episode, we do every once in a while we do our director's episodes, which means that the films are the picks might not have much to do with each other stylistically or when it comes to plot or story or anything else, but they share the same director. And in this case, we have two movies that couldn't be more different as far as the genre or um, the story or anything else really is concerned. But they share a director, and uh, the director is Gore Verbinski. So these picks kind of make sense because Verbinski is a pretty brave director when it comes to versatility. The guy has tried um, pretty much any genre you can possibly think of, all the way from like uh, J-horror, Japanese horror remake to weird uh, full CGI animated feature and everything in between. So uh, the picks for this episode are Ryan's, and Ryan picked The Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl, the first one, as overrated, and the movie that Gore Verbinski did in between the first and the second Pirates movies as sort of a palate cleanser, I guess, and that is the Nicolas Cage dramedy um, the Weatherman, uh, that's Ryan's underrated. But first, let's start out with uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. And the new one is out, uh, so it's in the kind of in the zeitgeist now, even though it's kind of already forgotten after like a week. It didn't make much of a cultural splash, the fifth one that just came out. But but anyway, Ryan, why did you think uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl as uh, overrated? This dock is off limits to civilians. I'm terribly sorry, I didn't know. If I see one, I shall inform you immediately. Apparently there's some sort of high-toned and fancy to-do up at the fort, eh? How could it be that two upstanding gentlemen such as yourselves did not merit an invitation? Well, this might be a bold statement because these movies are... are mostly beloved uh i i'd at least say with audiences at least the first three uh, gore verbinski directed movies and and i don't think they're totally meritless um and and what i'm about to say is gonna gonna make it sound a little bit more negative than i really am but i i truly do believe that this franchise as a whole after the transformers movies this is probably the worst mega budget franchise like there are worse franchises but like the ones that are made for 150 200 million dollars and and gross a billion dollars worldwide like after transformers which are like the the you lift the barrel and then there are those movies and then like the bottom of the barrel would be pirates of the caribbean uh (laughs) for for me uh i've never really liked these movies all that much um i think there are some interesting stuff in them but i find each each new film to be more bloated more convoluted more nonsensical and and i never really liked this first one to begin with though watching it this time i i i will credit gore verbinski because there are uh there were things that i was kind of looking forward to seeing in this movie that i could remember uh and then i realized they were actually in the sequels (laughs) uh weirdly enough um Mm. I was looking for, I was like, oh, I like the design on Davy Jones. And I was like, wait, oh, he comes in on the second one. And then I was like, oh, so that means the weird being John Malkovich-esque scene is not in this movie either, where Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow is in Davy Jones' locker so I guess, and there's like multiple yeah. versions. So like, I guess. Yeah, so, so, I guess, so I guess you're in a position where, let me let me tell you something about where I come from with, for example, the Transformers movies. Like people always say, oh, the first one is the good one and the rest of them are crap. And like, I can't 
make out any difference between those two. The first yes. is just as shitty as the second one or the third one or the fourth. They're all interchangeable to me. And uh, when it comes to Pirates franchise, it feels like even people who really love the first movie, a lot of people who are really into the franchise even would also agree that the second and third one is bloated. Maybe the fourth one is forgettable. I haven't even seen that one. But um, You shouldn't. It's but people still. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling. Uh, but people still say that, but the first one is really good. The first one is always known as the good one. And exactly. you're basically saying that you're coming at it from the point of view of where I come at, like, Transformers, and saying, like, it was never good to begin with. I'm Well, I'm in that same boat with you in terms of the Transformers movies, too. But like, oh, yeah, but, we, but, I, but I am in – but I, I am of that with this one. I was like, well, they were never good to begin with. But I think that, like, the elements that I ultimately do appreciate mostly – I think come to the sequels mainly because uh, it, like, if I can't make heads or tails of which movie is which, at least I feel like some of the weirder, stranger elements came from those movies, and those feel like they came from Gore Verbinski. Like, those elements feel like they're uniquely his. And uh, speaking of On Stranger Tides, and I haven't seen the latest one, but uh, I will say that the Verbinski's three movies are visually appealing. Like, they're very mm-hmm. visually dynamic movies and i feel like in the fourth one and at least from the trailers i've seen of this newest one are super yeah they don't have flat. much of a yeah much of a vision they're they're, they're, so they're, they're movies put together by committee yeah with a bunch of suits and all exactly. that stuff yeah it definitely has that feeling and yeah verbinski is definitely one of those directors who even if he makes like a mediocre or even a bad movie um he adds something unique uh and kind of a absurdist in a way like his movies have like some weird stuff in them even the even the things that like as 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 boring and kind of uneven as and forgettable honestly as the lone ranger was it had some like really weird stuff in it like Mm -hmm. um there's just one part where um tonto like threatens to rape one of the bad guys with like a duck's leg or something like it's it's like he, he adds some like really weird interesting stuff into like whatever movie he's making and the pirates movies kind of have that too but yeah so i i do um so you so you're basically saying that let's let's stick to um curse of the black black pearl for now sure. and um so why do you think uh because we we kind of without even getting into it um anyone who's listening to the podcast or any anybody who like who has seen the second and third one um, the general consensus seems to be that the second and third one are too bloated. They put too much um, weight on Jack Sparrow as a character. Like he works better as a side character, which is why I kind of could tolerate and kind of like the fifth one because he's relegated to like being a side character again. And, uh, you know, and they're, they're over long. They're too just, just all over the place and just headache inducing and all that stuff. Um but why why do you think specifically Curse of the Black Pearl like is a, is a is a non-starter to begin with? I think it's a non-starter because I I was rewatching it and I'm like, man, I remember like other than the things that I was that I joked about that I was looking forward to in the sequels that were not in this movie, but I was like, man, I remember like pretty much every plot beat of this movie, like weirdly enough. And I realized because there's really maybe about five plot beats and the rest is just like nonstop, incessant swashbuckling that just goes on and on and on forever. Mm -hmm. And it just gets so deafening and boring. Like, like Verbinski is a very versatile director with the camera, but like, I, I feel like, and the reason I really don't like this movie, especially this first one, which most people love, and I think people like it because it is palatable, because there's not much that happens and the plot is very straightforward in this one. Uh, I think people are able to cling on to it, and I also think there's this uh, – there's a couple things. Number one, at the time, you know, this was seen as kind of a joke before – like when it was in production. They were mm-hmm. like, oh my god, Disney is going to make a movie off a theme park ride? Like they, like they yeah, laughed the, in its face. And behind the scenes, the producers were like losing their shit because they thought Johnny Depp had lost his mind with his performance and all that. So there was a lot of like turmoil going on. Exactly. It was like in the trades. It was like a big thing. And then the movie came out and it, it sort of pulled like I guess the most recent like comparison I could think of would be something like World War Z where it was like <laughs> its production was so under like 
scrutiny and under a microscope and then the movie came out and people were just kind of like met with this like well that wasn't terrible like sort of like well, yeah like, it's the well, low expectations like sure and i think uh, like i think the movie uh number one this feels less like a gore verbinski movie to me and more like a jerry bruckheimer production which is why i don't mm-hmm. like it because oh, yeah. i don't like most jerry bruckheimer movies that mm-hmm. aren't rated r uh and even then <laughs> it's questionable um and and secondly, it puts way too much stock in uh, the Orlando Bloom character, Will Turner, who's just the most boring block of wood. Like I posted, well, Bloom a... and Kira Knightley both are just I gotta black say, holes of charisma. Sure, I, I will say their relationship is she's quite good in this first movie. Like she was actually the one thing that I kind of took away this time around i was like oh she's kind of an interesting character and she's got the spunk and she's like you know kind of fierce and i i like i liked that out of all the performances including johnny depp it was the one out of this movie that i was like oh i like i i like her in this movie but when you put their relationship together oh i couldn't care less (laughs) like yeah she he drags her down and they yeah he's 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 really dull like i mean i'm not a huge fan of uh kira natley's performance but it's a I do agree that it is it is it's slightly better. It has a little bit than Orlando Bloom. It has a little bit more spunk. Mm-hmm. Uh Orlando Bloom is a guy who just like really fit Legolas because he was supposed to be this like emotionless elf sure. character, but then anything else where they just like struggled so much to turn him into a, a major star, it just didn't hold because he just really doesn't have that much of a presence. And the new the fifth movie, the one thing that I kind of admired was um like I mean, first of all, they straight up copy paste those characters into the fifth movie. Right, the new, the young, new, young the new characters have. are basically like they're, they're they're the exact same characters. I'm, I mean, the guy is like uh, Orlando Bloom's character's son anyway, uh, and the girl is exactly like that kind of plucky. Like uh, this is I know this is the 17th century patriarchy, but I'm still gonna act like you know. I'm going to be like that rebellious um, girl who who's like struggling to get respect, and uh, it's the same exact kind of character. But at least the actors they chose, uh, maybe because they're they're like relative unknowns, like they put a lot of effort into it, mm-hmm. even though they probably knew that this is just you know a cash grab fifth pirate sequel that no one's really going to give a shit about. But um, but at least they have those two those two kids had some like natural presence and charisma that i thought was is just sorely lacking as far as like like you said like the, as far as the relationship goes because yeah i mean kira knightley is to me is more tolerable when she's in for example like there's a sequence where um kept jack sparrow and uh her character get uh stuck on the island and it's my favorite drunk, scene and that's movie. like that's fun yeah uh but yeah anything to do with the relationship and the thing about it that bugs me so much is how much of the running time Gore Verbinski just like uh devotes to that and it just it's it feels so so flat to me yeah no it doesn't it doesn't really work and 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 mainly because it just doesn't there there's not a lot of work done in that really like there's not a lot of work done to make that relationship work to begin with i guess because it's just like you're introduced uh the prologue of the movie you're introduced to how they meet as kids uh, that Will Turner uh, floats off the Black Pearl as a, another ship, or the other ship is destroyed. And but then it fast forwards like thirteen years later, and then it's just like their their chemistry together is like a non just a non starter from that point. Mm-hmm. Like it just doesn't like the work is like okay, so they've known each other, but like but that spark that would like make that the you know them feel that passionately about each other is just not yeah it's it's there. not only it's not only the performances they're, they're they're that relationship is very underwritten too right. it's, it's, it's it's very kind of on the surface reason, it's there because reasons that's that's yeah. why it's yeah it's, exactly uh yeah that's and i i just yeah it's oh, this, this just doesn't have a very strong script i mean they must have been like after this success of the the movie and then um Johnny Depp's performance and that character became like a household name and they must have been like really that's that's why I think they put so much they put so much stock into Johnny Depp and Jack Sparrow in the the second and third movies I don't know about the fourth one was because I feel like they kind of knew that he was the saving grace of that movie because if you just take him out of it 
it's even it's just like a really boring doll like it's like it's cutthroat island if you just take him out of it it's straight up cutthroat island <laughs> yes it with, is with, with some with some magic like with supernatural elements that's pretty much all it is really right and i wondered too like watching it this time because i had to pretend i pretend i was watching it in 2003 and be like okay if we didn't have that you know decade or more of baggage with him basically replicating the jack sparrow role in just about everything he's done since I'm like, is this performance going to bug me? Um, and it and it didn't for the most part. Like like you then you you think about that baggage and then it kind of kicks in and you're like, oh yeah, this is what you've been doing for 14 years. But then at the same time, I could like it's easy for him to steal this movie. Like I'm looking at mm. it and it's like, oh, like in this time, in this moment, that was that was a fresh like kind of unpredictable spin in an otherwise very predictable rote movie. And so, like, I could see why, like, people, like, grew attached to that character because he does stand out. He stands out amongst the the wallpaper, essentially. And so, Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, they they do put too much stock in that character. And the fourth one, the fourth one is just him because Keir Knightley Mm. and Orlando Bloom are cut from it. Uh, and it just doesn't like it gets it gets so tired and it gets tired from like the start uh, essentially mm. and you're just exhausted within the first couple of minutes from exactly the I'm like oh yep this is this is and the, the, thing the, that the you stick do. gets sold too after a while I mean a little of them I can see the appeal I can see why people liked it I can see like I kind of also applaud like Depp's bravery and how he approached that performance uh, whether or not he was trolling because he thought the movie was going to be shit anyway or whether or not he was genuinely trying to make like some choices that could be entertaining and fun for the audience uh, either way it worked and um but at the same time it's like this is the kind of cartoonish character that you put in a big budget blockbuster like action adventure epic that the the less you have of him as a side character the better off you will be but yeah. then but then the flip side of that is that your leads and your your main romantic plot, your main action plot that revolves around these characters, like the Orlando Bloom and Kira Knightley character, should be interesting. Those should be well written as well. You can't just like put all your weight on what's supposed to be a side character, which is kind of what happens in Pirates of uh, the Curse of the Black Pearl. It's like a it kind of suffers from an identity crisis. It doesn't know if it wants to be like a cartoonish. Uh, pirate comedy uh with supernatural elements or like an epic uh adventure like swashbuckling love story in the old like errol flynn mm-hmm. type of thing you know what i mean like it's it's it, it can't i guess like for our for our audience who are nanogenarians like in their 90s um i guess it can't i guess i should say like it can't decide if it wants to be an errol flynn picture or a bob hope picture <laughs> sure <laughs> And I'm okay with the genre bending. Current like, references, very modern references. Yeah, totally. Way to go, way to go. Sick reference, bro. <laughs> Everyone knows your references are out of control. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, that playing Gish is hot. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I uh, um, I don't mind the genre bending necessarily. Like, I don't mind that it that it wants to be both those things if it could pull it off. Like, I, I have no problem with that. Yeah. And I, I, I just think that, again, I just think it's a pretty – I think it's a pretty dull movie, and I think people have fonder memories of this movie than they may think uh, because of the freshness of Depp's performance and, and the fact that there hadn't really been, like, a pirate epic or a pirate movie in, in years. So for, like, a new generation, it was sort of a fresh genre. And then I think for, like, you know, critics at the time and – an older audience at the time. I mean, I guess, I don't know how you define older, but like just the fact that the movie was like, it didn't suck. You know, Mm -hmm. it didn't suck the way that like it, like the knives were out for this movie. And the fact Mm -hmm. that it was like cohesive and comprehensible at all, people were surprised by it. And I think it got a huge pass. Yeah. Yeah. And then how shitty, like the haunted mansion turned out to be that kind of, or the country, or the country bears. It also (laughs) kind of solidified that like, yeah, this was a shitty idea. And they actually like, the fact that they pulled off like a halfway decent movie out of it was kind of a miracle right. when you compare it to those movies. Um, well, they, the but one at the thing same the time, movie it was does, overhyped. It was overhyped, but the one thing the movie does well is it does introduce – like it does drop you into this world, and it does feel like a, a world, like a cinematically built – thing and so like i could see where you know whereas like something like the haunted mansion of the country bears just wouldn't work the way that because this movie introduces it you know of course a very convoluted in later movies but like it, it introduces this like 
really weirdly dense mythology to all of them. Mm. Uh, I mean, that starts with all that starts with this movie, but um, so I could see where you, you this... can kind of follow it in this movie. It really goes overboard with the second and third one. I don't know what happened. Like those movies are so indulgent, and again, there's some yeah. weird, interesting stuff. And I think that was mostly courtesy of Gore Verbinski. And I think Gore Verbinski with this movie, like while it is visually appealing and the production design is really good, and and Hans Zimmer's score does get tiresome but it is a good score uh ultimately but i think this movie just had to function it just had to function to not be a gigantic it had to function to not be Waterworld for disney essentially and so yeah like yeah. like so it's like i feel like the bruckheimer tendency like the machine of the bruckheimer productions was was in place and verbinski was just like the director to steer the ship and Honestly, like I can't blame him because he had, at this point he had only made Mouse Hunt and uh, The Ring, which The Ring was a pretty big the cultural Mexican. phenomenon. Oh, he did make The Mexican. That's right. Okay, mm-hmm. so he made three movies, but none to this scale. Which is another like kind of fascinating piece of mediocrity. <laughs> yeah, like The Mexican. That movie, movie wasn't good either, but it had his like unique. It did some uh, of his unique touches. I of, totally. Like, that must be just like the forgotten movie because I totally forgot he made that movie. Oh, yeah. But I feel like I, the reason I wanted to bring Jerry Bruckheimer up so much uh, mm-hmm. and, and because I feel like I feel like somehow in passing, somehow in in on the Disney lot somewhere that Gore Verbinski and Nicolas Cage were sitting there having lunch together after working on Pirates, after working on National Treasure for Nicolas Cage. And they just had to vent. And they just had to vent I'm and sure. get out their frustrations. <laughs> and they're just like, hey, let's make a movie together. <laughs> let's make a weird, fucking, ballsy, strange character piece together. And that movie became let's, The let's Weatherman. Make a, yeah, let's make an indie... <laughs> let's make a weird, fucked up indie movie with a big studio budget. Exactly, or relatively Which will big. never happen now. I just, There's well, no way that movie would be made right now. I, you say that, but I, I gotta squeeze in a little bit. Just before we swing in to, to uh, The Weatherman, I, I, you could say the same thing for Cure for Wellness. That's a very strange, bizarre, oh, I still haven't seen it, so, yeah. mid-budget movie. Oh, man, I, I really like that movie I'm surprised that was pulled off as well. Oh, it tanked so hard, too. It, like, it just, yeah, but it just it was, face-planted. The fact that it was even made in this climate... Oh my god! You should see it. Just, just. I think you would if you don't like it. I think you would at least appreciate that. Like, there's looks like one of those movies. Yeah, yeah, there's some weird ass touches that I that I liked, but ultimately I I found it to be like a a very like kind of sly satire on uh, on studio filmmaking, which you know uh, what we should talk about that off mic when you get a chance to see the movie. But but the weatherman like. I realized why I love Cure for Wellness so much by rewatching The Weatherman. Like, because there's just, yeah. it's just so. Oh, that makes me curious about it even more. So let's just, let's get into it. Why did you pick The Weatherman as your underrated? Tarsos, 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 Tarsos. Man, I'd like to put my face in there. Right in there. Charter sauce. My hips are cold. Charter sauce. That's when you know it's cold. I like eating pussy. Tartar sauce. A lot of guys don't. Well, maybe they do. Maybe that's just black guys. Tartar sauce. What happened to the guy who was trying to go around the world in a balloon? Did he make it? I should put some espionage or stolen plutonium in my novel. Tartar sauce. Spice it up. Neil Young. Fuck, it's cold. Neil Young. What, why am I thinking about Neil Young? Neil Diamond. Neil. There's not a lot of famous Neils. Is this Wednesday? I wish I had two dicks. Uh, because I just think this movie. I, first of all, I, I I won't bury my lead. I love this movie. Like I wholeheartedly loved it, and I loved it when I saw it in two thousand five, uh, and I still love this movie. And I just feel like it's a movie, and it's a strange point in Nicolas Cage's career. Um, I mean, not necessarily strange. It's right, not right the... right before the tax problems, and where he's just like doing one straight to video movie after the other. Exactly. And... Well, because he was he was very do, he was doing a good job of doing the like one for me, one for them movie, where like he would mm-hmm. do the yeah. National Treasure, and, and then, then do Weatherman, yeah, and and, and well, Lord of War, which came out around mm-hmm. the same time. Andrew Nicole, which like I like that movie quite a bit. Oh yeah, and, me too. Um, there was like there was one other title, and I'm blanking on it, but but the Weatherman was in that that period, and I just I feel like this movie number one nobody but Nicolas cage could have played dave spritz there's no way anybody else could have pulled it off because i think the movie is so almost like a perfect 
um, analogy for Cage's career or how people perceive mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage, mm-hmm. because like especially like the scenes where shit gets thrown at him, where people are just throwing fast mm-hmm. food and throwing uh, frosties at him, and uh, I, I think because like Nick Cage has this sort of aura around him that there there people just want to straight punch him in the face, like he's got one of those mm-hmm. faces that people are just like. I just want to lay one of them on like that conversation where the husband and wife are watching uh, yeah. the, the TV and she's I like, I like think his he's asshole handsome. face. Yeah. He's like, <laughs> I, I think he's handsome and she's just like, he's an asshole. <laughs> and and I think that like, that, like people think that about Nichols. Like, yeah. Yeah, he's got that polarizing uh, feel to I can him. See that, but at the same time, he is fascinating and likable, but just like the, yeah. um, he's likable maybe not likable but 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 relatable in a way at least like the character in the movie is just like so infinitely relatable as much of a dick and as much of a just a child like he acts like such a child in so many places and you just like kind of roll your eyes and cover your face just because it's so awkward and weird but like you can't turn away because you relate to everything that he's kind of going through yeah and uh, yeah, let me. I'll just I'll just come right out and say it. This was my favorite film of 2005. It was it was one of my top ten films of last decade. I um, damn. I really really, yeah. I really really love this movie. It's it was. Uh, I think it's it's it is it is grossly underrated in terms of you know um, at least in terms of a studio picture that could really brutally deal with like the the existential crisis of pretty much every adult goes through in life it's it's an incredibly it's a, it's an in your face movie it is a brutal movie it is it is just mm-hmm. kind of uncomfortable and awkward at, at times but it's like an intensely immensely human film and it's an immensely relatable film it's it's it just it just basically deals with um what it's like to be an adult and this is a film that i just love returning coming back to every couple of years and with the life experiences that i gather over whatever the last time i watched it like i, I get something completely different out of it because it does really speak to um all the kind of the um you know like the it's just the the hectic confusing existential anxiety of being an adult you know that like that kind of doubt you have constantly the constant doubt that you have in yourself about like what you can achieve and where are you in life what's my purpose in life what am i doing and then just just all the time feeling like you know i'm a loser but people haven't like really figured that out yet and like to just that kind of like insecurity that goes on while you're also dealing with like all this various crap that kind of like the adult life uh throws at you like this is a film that like deals with this in a brutally honest but like incredibly empathetic way totally like you know what does he constantly say he's like i'm i'm going to fix this or i'm going to i'm going to get there and uh you know there's that sad realization that it's just like you you really never do like you just do the best you can but you yeah. never really get to that that point and yeah i i think it's a, I mean, the the key of the movie is like by the way it's this is one of the best screenplays in my opinion that's written over the last uh, during the last decade and it's crazy uh, Steve, that his uh steven uh steven conrad conrad yeah. and it's crazy that it's an amazing script it is it's an incredible script but i also have to like you know you have to contribute uh i'm I, i'm curious i'm just so curious if his scripts for pursuit of happiness and uh, uh secret life of walter mitty were good and they were just kind of sentimentalized yeah in, in the direction because if that's the case, then obviously, like, him and Gore Verbinski were just on the same wavelength in terms of this movie. Like, they knew exactly what Yeah, it definitely kind of... looks like they were on the same page. I mean, the, the those other two are a little bit more, like, different, uplifting kind of stories anyway. But I'm sure he added his own brand of just, like, yeah, he does this really well in a way that he's almost like a like a more accessible mix of like Todd Salons and uh, like Charlie Kaufman, like just deals with like these people who are like complete messes. Uh, like his, I, I really, I really like his, uh, the, the, I think the one movie he directed is called the promotion with John C. Riley. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. And the yeah. uh, Sean, Sean William Scott. And it has that same kind of like the awkwardness of life and how like hard it is to like relate to people. And he all, he always creates, um, in his movies, at least the ones that were adapted, like kind of straight from his, that where you know the director 
he was on the same page with the director. He has this almost like approach that lifts the veneer of um, like polite society uh, and just shows you that like, you know, like there's this thing in like the weatherman where wherever he goes, like people who serve him, like they obviously don't give a shit about him. Mm -hmm. Like people are just like openly rude. People are just annoying and just like just shows just shows like almost like if you took out that like kind of phony um, thing that people have in like modern society, like people don't, you know, it's just like it, it almost shows that people don't really give a shit about that. Like everybody's going through their own their own like stressful thing. And it just it kind of like captures that really well, like even like small moments like um you know, he goes to uh, just get coffee and the guy doesn't even care about that. You know, the coffee costs a little bit extra with the tax and he can't get the paper for his dad and all that stuff. Like, it's just that I find that stuff to be brilliant. Yeah, no, I think it's it's incredibly it's incredibly brilliant. Uh, I, I I love I love the the way I love the way that it feels like the um and you get a lot of like voiceover and internal monologuing, but I think the thing that Verbinski and Conrad do really well is like almost everything that the Dave Spritz character says, it feels like his internal monologue is going outwards. Like almost mm -hmm. everything he's thinking he's saying, but it's not in like a hacky on the nose screenplay way. It's just like, he he's like got this frustration that just doesn't know what to say. He doesn't even know how to insult people properly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like when he insults yeah. his ex-wife's uh, fiance, it's just, <laughs> the, it's still so like the funniest good. thing yeah but what he does dildo. to the guy when uh yeah when, it, but after that too when, yes well i was gonna when bring the that guy's up just like perfectly nice and he comes down and his uh nicholas cage's character like goes through this like kind of really bad situation with his son and he slaps and him like, with the glove he slaps him with the fucking glove that's so and then good his reaction there and then the way that he cuts back to like uh him and his dad and the the the, one of the overall goals, like the one of the driving forces for the character is for him to, you know, his father is Michael Caine. He's a big Pulitzer Prize winning author who's he's going to die. And he's just Nicolas Cage is basically known as this like goofy weatherman who just like lost his family because he was like an insecure, insecure dick who didn't know how to like handle things. And all he wants is for his father to like feel proud of him to of his achievements before he dies, like with a happy family and. And like his voiceover even says that yes, he was successful and he was busy all the time, but he was also a good father. He was like the perfect package. But then at the same time, the film kind of like really subtly and and in an incredibly insightful way, like goes into like what what does success entail? What does it mean? What does it mean when? What does making it quote unquote mean, really? Uh, and there are some like really interesting. Uh, clues uh around the the film the visual clues that show that maybe his father like his father's idea of success might be the might not have anything to do with how he's constantly talking about like oh, i'm gonna be like this millionaire weatherman for network television in new york and i'm gonna get all my family to come with me and i feel like in a way it's almost like his father is like yeah, I mean that kind of comes clear in this in this beautiful scene at near the end uh, where they talk in the car. I don't think you know the one I'm talking oh, beautiful. about, where the, like like a rock, the Bob Seger, yeah, yeah, the Bob Seger scene, and that that all comes out to in in the open during that scene about like what he really thinks of life and what he really thinks achievement means. Um, but there are all these like wonderful clues here and here and there that like like for example, um, at the beginning where you first meet his father. Uh, Nicholas Cage is at the in at his at his father's house, and he's talking about like what a huge success his father was, and how like he's yearning to like gain his respect and all that stuff. And then you see that he's using his father is using his Pulitzer Prize as a paperweight, right? So that's kind of a, like a like a pretty cool visual cue to like kind of telegraph the fact that yeah he he didn't have he didn't put that much like uh, uh, mental real estate into his his big achievements anyway he he probably just cared about his family and tried to do the best he could and that's kind of like like what he says at the end it's just like i'm just a normal guy who like practiced writing and i just got better at it that's all i did like there's mm -hmm. there's nothing really beyond like trying to do the best while you're navigating life in a way and that that's what it kind of comes down to and and as 
as kind of uncomfortable and um, just brutally honest as it is at times, in a way, it's almost like a pretty it's a it's a film that has a pretty zen outlook which is which is really weird when you're dealing with like such a kind of really in your face like r-rated uh character study right i mean there is like a like there are sequences that have like not just because they're dream sequences but there is like a dream like quality to the movie like amongst all the like anxieties amongst the like the ticks of the clocks um against hans zimmer's score which is uh, really good and really really subtle in this movie like you great know. great minimalistic score and i just like yeah I, I love those touches in the score which is like the there's the seconds going and it's like time is just like constantly running out and it just like adds to the anxiety of the character in a really subtle way it just sounds like one of those scores that he just did it on his like computer like over a weekend or something but it fits so well like it fits the character well in the film and i forgot like you know when he when he buckles down and like he he's still great even in his like overly bombastic scores but it's like it's so nice to be like oh yeah you could actually do like low-key like drama type scores too um mm-hmm. so that's really nice i'm glad you brought up the scene like towards the end of the movie with with him and his da- uh, dad because um I mean, that is, like, the pivotal moment, not just because, like, you know, he's made peace with what is going to happen, but through that Bob Seger song, you know, he pulls up and starts playing it because he had mentioned uh, at his father's funeral, like, I think of the song Like a Rock, and then, the, of course, the power goes out because everything shitty happens to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, his father's like, I, I don't get it. And then Nicolas Cage explains to him, like, why that is that, why why that works, why that reminds him of his dad and like in a way they you know come to the terms of like what success means for either of them or what like what they got out of life what it means for either of them like they, they didn't have an understanding but like instead of just continuing to not understand each other like through that song they just made that connection to to finally like hear one another mm-hmm. and it's it's great it's a great scene and, a great, and as, yeah. yeah it is it is it's such a beautiful and and uh on a scene and uh, I love the way that Steve Conrad just like writes these like little bits of dialogue that just like gets so much across like the uh, um, I just love that line of like you know easy doesn't enter into grown up life that's the that's basically the whole anchor of the the movie in that one line right there where his father tells him that mm-hmm. and uh, and also like when his father like at the very end is, is saying like in this life you have to chuck some shit like some things are not going to work out you know not everybody's like and he it's kind of his way of saying that i'm not this like i'm human just like you i'm not this like otherworldly genius that you have to like strive to like um catch up to and uh yeah i just i just love how conrad's dialogue just just captures these these uh kind of very relatable emotions i agree and it's also it's like just brutally hilarious throughout the mm-hmm. movie oh, like, yeah. you, uh, the, you know it's melancholic of course and it, it's existential but it's also just one of the funniest movies i've seen like just just the the dialogue like especially the scene that gets to me is like whether well, it's a flashback uh the tartar, where, sauce? The tartar sauce yes the That's inner brilliant. monologue he has is just so fantastic and i have because he captures like how random like your your inner monologue works especially when you're just like going out to do some like random thing and I just love how it's like it starts with like him going like tartar sauce tartar sauce tartar sauce and it's just like he's constantly trying to and then tartar sauce like enters in his mind from time to time but it gets like less and less yeah. and in the meantime he's talking about like neil diamond neil young yeah. I wonder, there aren't a lot of famous Neils. Yeah. And then there's this like woman in front of him. And he's just like, I'd like to bury my face <laughs> in her ass. But but the way that it, it, it's edited is, is brilliant because he doesn't take even a second of space in between those thoughts. It's still just like this random train of thought, just like nonstop. Yeah. And then like it, it has this like the, the cutting in this film, the editing, oh, the so com- comedy editing is just is just so funny. Like the, the way that we mentioned, like after that moment of like he straight up slaps his uh, ex-wife's boyfriend with his glove and then it cuts hard cuts to uh, him and his dad in the cab just being silent and then the voiceover just saying like if you don't want your dad to think you're a complete fucking asshole maybe don't like slap someone with a, yeah <laughs> with unless a unless you're being noble or something yeah <laughs> and he's like i'm not yeah I'm not and then, yeah the writing especially but, the voiceover writing and it's 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 the 
it's weird because between this and adaptation, which is another my two favorite Nicolas Cage performances ever, uh, are are scripts that are in, the, in like this rare category of of use of voiceover of not just like storytelling, you know, with the past tense kind of thing, but like use of voiceover to depict uh, inner monologue as it happens inside the character. That's just brilliant. Like between adaptation and this, they just they they really capture like what it's like to um, to just like have an to have an inner monologue. That's just like that's kind of confusing and convoluted, and you can't really like focus on exactly what you want to say. And yeah, I just I just love it's the the voiceover in this film is just is 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 great. Yeah, it's used to it's used to a great effect, and um, I also have to give like some shout out too, like to some of the other performances in this movie, uh, like other than Nick Cage and and Michael Caine, because everyone's pretty strong across the board. Like Hope Davis is really really yeah. good in the movie too. My, my MVP, one of my MVPs, especially that doesn't really get mentioned a lot, is Gil Bellows. Is, is that his name? Uh, from Ally McBeal, uh, the guy who plays the the kind of uh, pedophile who uh, goes oh, out and kind of like yeah. starts seducing his son. Yes, uh, I was wondering where I saw him before, and now like now that you said that, it, yeah, he was it. he was he was famous from like Ally McBeal. He was in the Shawshank Redemption and yeah, all that. He's really he was, good, and that's Bell, yeah. yeah, he's really good in this. In the way that because he doesn't come across as like right off the bat, you totally understand. Like you, you feel uh, uncomfortable as soon as he gets into comes into the picture because you know what his end goal is. You totally understand his character. You know exactly what's going on, but the way that he approaches it. And the way that he's written is it's like I just love that how like he just keeps cursing just to like relate to the kids, for example, like these yeah. pathetic moves like that. But um but he doesn't come across as like immediately just creepy and off putting. Like he just he just comes across like gradually like like a cool dude who just like likes hanging out with kids and you know, uh you know where it's going, but then at the same time you understand why this kid is like especially with kind of a absentee father or a father who's just like really awkward and doesn't even know how to parent who's out of the picture. It's like, you could see that why he would become friends with, with this guy. And then, um, I also like really appreciate that that subplot doesn't end with, uh, uh, us seeing, you know, that awkward moment of like where the guy like makes a move on the kid. Yeah. We just hear and, it like and... all that. We just hear about like what happened because then you're, then it's, it's, a, it's a good move because you really don't need to actually see that scene. You know, it's coming anyway. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the way that subplot is, is resolved is, is brilliant. Not in the way that like it story wise, it does end in a predict kind of a predictable way as like this kind of, um, chance for him to like kind of redeem himself and kind of, quote-unquote become a man mm-hmm. by like by kind of like going after the guy but the way that it's edited is is hilarious because like you you hear he's while he's on his way he keeps thinking about like why he's constantly being hit with fast food and he's like clowns get hit with fast food and then he just like the voiceover stops and he does like there's like really awkward fight scene and then once that's over the voiceover just continues exactly where yes. he left <laughs> it's so it's so good and it and it's so like i said it's so strange and it's so just like defies what we know about and the other movie i thought about a lot uh while watching this movie and and i i know it's definitely an overrated movie for you it's a movie i like but um I thought of American Beauty a lot watching this movie. Yeah, right? I but, can see that. But like, like in terms of like the voiceover, but like I feel like this movie just does it all, just does it too, in like a much more, much more subtle and much more like realistic and humane way. And I like I know that movie is like has it's brought up to like yeah. these like, the, the, crazy the heights, that, but the difference is that the Weatherman has this like really fresh lack of pretension. Yes. Like it's it's not it's not uh desperate to have you like him uh, have you like the character or have you like like the movie even uh because it's it kind of shows like yeah people are fucked up they're weird and uh we're just trying to like make it and I just I love like exact going back to the writing again I just love the metaphors of like you know his job as a weatherman he's trying to understand how this works and so he's just like constantly trying to talk to the guy's the guy who's in charge of like all the scientific stuff, and he's like, "I'm trying to understand it. Why is this happening?" And the guy's just like, "It's wind, man. It just blows all over the place. How the fuck should I know?" Like it just <laughs> it gets to that point, and it's it's like this really funny but 
completely appropriate uh, metaphor for life. And then he ac he actually even like uses it as a metaphor uh, later on. And I just I just love all these like touches that just that just uh, you know like as far as I do script coaching and I do um, script coverages. And the thing that I one of the things that I really admire in a, an extremely well written screenplay is be able to like use almost every plot element to to create a cohesive theme mm -hmm. and this is one of those scripts that does it like is a master at doing that and uh, it could have been so wrong-headed like like yes, I, like yes, watching yes. this movie again it could have been so pretentious it could have been so like it, obvious yeah so on the nose and like this movie's in your face but it isn't like but it isn't obvious like, or like one of those indie movies it. that that that, keep, that say like it's a metaphor for life you know like those kinds of movies but which is it, it is this is definitely those right that but, kind of but it feels but it feels earned like it feels earned yeah, because exactly. it's your uh verbinski and conrad are putting these characters through like through some shit like they're putting them through real life like tough shit to deal with like a character is like okay he's divorced and his dad is dying and all this stuff and it's like his youngest daughter's smoking and his son is having other issues you know it's Dealing like with the... being bullied bullied and being called tam camel toe which that really ends in a hilariously unpredictable way as well yes. what the girl con considers camel toe to be and all that stuff and he's just like and that also goes towards like uh again like that's why i love the script so much because everything in it can be traced back to the theme of like nothing is like in life is certain it's the wind that just blows all over the place because yeah. he thinks his daughter's going through some like heavy shit because of the way that she's being bullied at school and then it turns out that maybe she's doing just fine yeah <laughs> so. it, like again it's that same thing with the like the scene with him and michael kane towards the end of the movie it's just like just have the conversation <laughs> just talk talk with one mm -hmm. another and, and break that uh that barrier of assumption down so it's uh yeah, no, it's it's a movie. It's great. I I, lo I do love this movie. I hadn't seen it in years. Like it had been a long time since I've seen it, and uh, I I watched it last night, rented it on VOD, and was just like, "Damn it, this movie's still fucking." Great. Oh yeah, and it 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 has dated extremely well. It really and also, has, and I feel yeah. like it's even better than it was when I saw it. In yeah, it's, 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 it was like, a little bit ahead of its time, like with the <clears throat> the kind of postmodern, um, more kind of ironically detached yet kind of still really closely connected to existentialism and all that stuff that we're like dealing with these days it really fits into that that mold what really sets it apart is the fact that it's a studio film not a like small budget indie yeah, or this something was like put that. out by paramount which is crazy to me and it was made for like I think it only made like 20 million I want to say it was budgeted around then but it could have been more I have I have no idea um, I mean, no, this is a movie that that doesn't have like it's a straight up character piece. Doesn't have much of a plot. Uh, it is like the character itself is not like he's a dick. He is completely like out of his element most of the time. He is uh, what makes him so fascinating and what makes him what makes you kind of keep watching him because he's always relatable. Yeah, even when he's just acting like a total piece of shit child. Like the like the glove slapping or this moment where he just like he's straight up like he's he's practicing his archery, which again goes back to like the themes of the film. It's like archery like gives you control over something mm -hmm. that at least like you feel like you have control over something. And I think that's what it gives to that character. That's such a like interesting little element that he adds in there. Uh, yeah, like this. As far as the screenwriting is goes, it's just like every single choice that Stevie Conrad made is just like it fits perfectly. And uh, yeah, yeah. There's this one moment where he straight up turns the arrow to his wife's yeah, boyfriend, <laughs> and it's just like there's just like really like he does some like really weird, stupid shit. And but at the same time, every single thing that he does, you can totally relate to it because he he his motivation is always like. I I'm doing this for my family. I want to get my family back. Yeah. Like his motivation is always like trying to gain some semblance of respect from, from people trying to figure out his place in life. It's not just that he's an asshole just for the sake of being an asshole. It's that he is just lost and yeah. he is trying everything. And because 
because of that, he's also letting his anxieties and frustrations like bubble up to the surface. And he's making these like really wildly stupid decisions. And mm-hmm. yeah, and it's, it's also a combination of that and a combination of just like straight up regular bad luck that everybody has to deal with day in and day out. And then the movie does a really good job of like kind of uh, balancing those things. I agree. And this is my favorite kind of Nicolas Cage performance. Like oh, yeah. how, he, how he balances that because like, you know, I love, I love, face off nick cage you know i love like when cage goes like yeah, the insane the yeah. insane bug-eyed nicholas cage yeah. you know we 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 all well maybe not we all but like i i certainly love that but like the best nicholas cage performances are the ones where i mean he's subdued but you feel that cage could burst out in any second mm-hmm. but he, but yeah. but he doesn't and those mm-hmm. are the t- like those are to me are the best nicholas cage performances because he's got an intensity and he's got a focus but he, but he's keeping it grounded and he's keeping it down to earth and yeah and, and that that might that might be why why I can't uh, decide whether or not this this or adaptation is my favorite Nicolas Cage performance because they're 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 kind of in that same um the same kind of category of like they like you said there's like something that's always bubbling underneath mm-hmm. but he just like yeah he can he can be incredibly subtle. He can when he when he wants to and like if you think about it like his his performance is like fairly uh calm and grounded if you take out like his his frustrations his crazy comes out through the voiceover but if you take out the voiceover um which is another thing that shows you that like uh one another thing that i really love about the film is that it shows you like how people are able to like put up a mask in society when like all this like crazy shit is going through their minds there are a lot of scenes like that where it's just like everything just looks he's just waiting at the dmv like nothing else is going on and then he's thinking about like all these like really depressing anxiety ridden things about his life and you know um so his yeah his performance like if you take out the voiceover which really gives the character like it's his his anxiety uh it it's this is a pretty grounded and pretty like kind of balanced performance it is it's 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 great and i'm with you it's one of my it may not be my favorite but it's like it's top three probably <laughs> nicholas cage performances it's it's up there um it's one of his most accomplished i think as far as um you know just dramatic acting his dramatic acting is i agree concerned. and it's my uh it's my favorite probably my favorite korverbinski movie um I really like Rango also, I, I guess. Oh, I yeah. had to like shout out to other movies that he's made that, that I really like. Oh, I was, uh, uh, this is one of my favorite G, um, Michael Caine performances as well. I think he's brilliant. He's so good in this he's movie. So, so, so deadpan, but like you just understand that character through and through. Definitely. Yeah. No, it's good. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Rango, definitely Rango. I love Rango. Yeah, I do too. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I think it won't even won the Oscar that year. Her best animated feature, so deserved. Um, Lone Ranger, you pretty much said it. Like that movie's a mess, but there are some there are some moments, there are some interesting moments in that movie that clearly like this director put in it. Um, I actually think the third act of that movie is kind of fun in terms of like the set piece that it is. Yeah, but, like but the, yeah, the yeah, movie, there, there's some stuff, Lone Ranger is almost like there's some stuff in Lone Ranger when I'm just like, man, if Buster Keaton had the this technology down this is kind of like what he would make yeah where like the that's, ladders are kind of like going from yeah, train yeah, that, to train that's, that's, yeah 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 so i'm thinking like they did right by that kind of like slapstick because the the intellectual property itself is also like really old kind of western yeah um serialized kind of cheesy thing anyway so they kind of like captured that pretty well but uh again like i, I think kind of the same with pirates is that the the studios um uh, and also maybe Verbinski's like ideal of like turning that material into like a big epic, like mm-hmm. big budget, huge epic. They just kind of like ruin the simplicity of the, the cheesiness, the inherent cheesiness of the premise. And that's why I think Lone Ranger fails as a movie, even though it has some like pretty spectacular um, moments, set pieces. in it. Yeah, it's got some moments. But yeah, that movie just doesn't really work. And then Cure for Wellness, I, you know, I recommend I, it's on. I think you can buy it on VOD right now, and probably by the time this episode drops, it'll be on Blu-ray. Um, and I recommend it. You know, like it was like the most critically well-received movie, and it uh, tanked the box office. But uh, mm. I haven't really stopped thinking about it since I've seen it. So yeah, I, 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 I definitely need to, I'm definitely need to check that one out. And I think he's a pretty decent uh, horror director as well. Yeah, um, the Ring's a solid. If, movie. if the original, if the original Ring didn't exist, 
I would think the the Ring remake is is a solid uh, translation. It's just like it sticks so close to the original and um, the the kind of practical effect heavy uh, in camera effect heavy approach of the original is just so inherently creepy that that that's it's hard to top that with a big studio film with more like impressive effects and more impressive glitzy sure. cinematography and all that like the, the the rawness and the muckiness of that the the japanese version is is just what makes it so creepy and but he does a think, good job with it it does a good job like if you especially when you consider it to like the the endless array of like jay horror remakes around that time oh i mean the, were, the american ring yeah the, i was about to say the american ring is like head and shoulders above most oh yeah remakes. not even like but <laughs> it's yeah, not even yeah. close i hate that people like mix it and the grudge up like especially like the american oh remakes. man I was like no no the grudge sucks <laughs> i think i think the original of the grudge is kind of crappy anyway uh, sure. that, that, that franchise was never like great to begin with but like yeah like dark water and yeah the eye the uh tale of two sisters was remade as something else i forgot the name but that's uh you know there, there's so many of those that's Compared to those, it's head and shoulders. Yeah, it's it's a fucking masterpiece. But yeah, um, yeah it's it's I'm I'm totally appreciative of uh, of the ring. Uh, the same with uh, like we like the Mexican is mm-hmm. like it's it's he's one of his like even if it even though it's like a kind of mediocre Brad Pitt. Um, uh, who's the um, the female Julia, Julia Roberts? Julia Roberts. We we call uh, it had some like really offbeat touches in there like i don't really remember that movie that well because i had no desire desire to like revisit it uh mouse hunt is bless i was gonna mouse say hunt, mouse yeah, hunt is a is a is a live action cartoon and it's kind of fun it is it's i believe just, it's just I, too in your face and too just manic to like really appreciate in a way um, I, I if i remember correctly i believe our our fellow playlister and, and friend of the show and former co-host eric mcclanahan was gonna pick mouse hunt as an underrated at some point oh, yeah um, yeah, really liked it yeah and we we never made it to it but uh yeah maybe in the brief, future yeah maybe in the future brief brief shout out for yeah for so, so the guy is like even even his misses there's something fascinating there and i i really appreciate the way that he takes chances on different genres and different styles mm-hmm. and he's never like really but then at the same time you can pinpoint there, there's stuff that you can pinpoint between Pirates of the Caribbean and The Weatherman, um, especially as far as like eccentric performances or um, just like these really like the Pirates of the Caribbean has like these really kind of semi absurdist, almost like ironic touches in it, like self-aware almost, and um, mm-hmm. that you know that you, so there, there's stuff, there's stylistic stuff, there's thematic stuff that kind of like. You can tell his style, even right. though he just does like very vastly different things. Yeah. And then, uh, um, yeah, yeah, and the uh, yeah, the, the second and third Pirates of the Caribbean movies, I think he got kind of stuck in the just bloated um, mythology that they tried to come across with basically that centered around basically what was supposed to be like a comedy relief side character. Right. And that was that was a giant misstep. But even those movies, like as far as I remember, because like I was I just checked out of those. Like, <laughs> I, I think I just saw like the last half of the third one because I was so uninterested in the second one. Um, but it, it also has like some weird shit in it. You know, like yeah. just that, that that's kind of entertaining. It's not used in the service of a good or even like halfway comprehensible movie. But um but there's stuff like that, and uh, his collaborations with um, Johnny Depp, I feel like the reason why Rango worked so well, which I think that was like one of my favorite films the year it came out. I still love that movie. I love how crazy and weird it is as a as a big budget animated movie for kids. Like that's that's crazy that that yes. movie even got made. Oh my god, it's, uh, it's, it's like a Hunter S. Thompson novel made it is, like, it's, in kid it's, form. It's, it's as if like Hunter Thompson wrote a an animated film and then Sam Peckinpah directed it. Like it's yeah. it's it's violent. It's it's grotesque. It's crude. Uh, <laughs> it's crude, but it's like incredibly funny and yeah, that movie is like a shit ton of fun. And uh, and it's not really a movie for kids. I don't. I never because what kids gonna like really get all those like old western references that it has or. 
Apocalypse Now and like all these like R-rated classic great movies that it references and it is it's a film that's it's an animated film that's kind of made for fans of people who watch like Sam Peckinpah movies right which I'm I'm in that category and I like I that's why I like kind of adore that movie I think I think like the lesson learned and maybe this is the last you know kind of my last thought is in terms of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies and Lone Ranger. I think, you know, Gore Verbinski is like, he's got a distinct style to him and, and he has these elements he likes to put in his films, but he's also, you know, he's also a journeyman filmmaker. And I think he's also like kind of respectable to like what he has to be making. So I think Pirates of the Caribbean and Lone Ranger for all the weirdness, like the moments of weirdness that where those movies really come alive they are unfortunately slavishly devoted to the Jerry Bruckheimer Disney like yes. template that mm-hmm. have been set, and so that's why those movies don't work. That's why because... there's that push and pull yeah. constantly, and that's and, why and I feel like those movies, yeah, those movies are so in uh, at war with themselves. And again, I think the first Pirates of the Caribbean people like because it's coherent. I think that's the thing that people remember most about that movie is that it's coherent and it's. And it's still way over long, but it's relatively short compared to the other ones. Oh yeah, and yeah, um, sure. I think that's what people are holding on to. But you know, maybe maybe look past the nostalgia or the memory, whatever it is, and, and just kind of like I kind of realized this said this franchise wasn't really that great to begin it with. It really wasn't, I and, and I yeah. think like when Gore Verbinski really gets to make a movie, when he gets to make a movie on his own devices, be it. The Weatherman, be it Rango, be it mm-hmm. Cure for Wellness, which like I would put as his top well, three well, movies because he got the full creative reign to make. Well, in in a, in a way, we get to see how much fun, how original like the Pirates movies or Lone Ranger could have been if he had full control by yes. watching Rango. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that gives you a complete picture of like, oh, these movies could have been like, like crazy and fun like this. And uh, but yeah, the, the whole Jerry Bruckheimer element kind of pulls it down because yeah, he did have a lot more. Uh, creative control on Rango, and I think that's that's by far the best of. I think that's that's by far the best of like Johnny Depp's weird, the weird kooky Johnny Depp performances because he always plays a cartoon character anyway, so might as well have it be an actual cartoon. Yeah, it's perfect. And then it like it perfectly fits. You know, it's yep. it's 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 perfect for that. And uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, people apart from the Weatherman, that I I feel like every chance I get, I've recommend that movie to people because it's it's really like you know it was kind of a flop when it came out it got really good reviews i feel like but it didn't get the kind of reverence that i thought it it um it deserved because it's it's a really like special film in terms of the way that it deals with um modern adult existential life uh and it's uh it's it's relatable and unique and personal but at the same time, it's incredibly universal, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a very hard thing to capture in in a in a feature screenplay. So yeah, Gore Verbinski and definitely Stephen Conrad are just like knocked it out of the park with that one. And as we can see, that's those are kind of lightning in a bottle moments, and we should cherish them because we see the other work that Gore Verbinski or Stephen Conrad is uh, doing, and they don't they're not up to the same level, perhaps because of the studio interference and all that stuff. Uh, so we see how, like how incredibly talented and unique these people could be. And we also get to see like why they get to the places they are in the first place. Yeah. And weatherman is, is one of those kind of gems and that's a hard film to, um, it will be a hard film to pull off these days. I, uh, I agree. And I'm happy. It, the... I'm happy it did. And, and you know, it, it, I feel like I feel like Pirates of the Caribbean existing helped get that movie get made the way it did. Oh, yeah. And if that's the case, oh, yeah. so be it. I'm glad it exists. I'm like fine. Yeah, yeah. exactly. If, if we got the Weatherman from that being, <laughs> I don't care. Go ho- go hog wild. Have fun. I, I'd rather be if you're gonna be like you're not gonna have Weatherman without uh, Pirates. I'd be like, all right, I'll be bored with those three movies. Then yeah, if you're gonna give me Weatherman, I'm if totally you give me fine one, with that. One great movie. One great movie out of those. That yeah. I'm totally. I'm totally into it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, then I would like really recommend, especially people who are into like just badass Western. Just if you're into Leone and Peckinpah, just go rent Rango and have a great time. I would agree. Well, should we wrap this up? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. Let's wrap it up. 
thank you for listening to another episode of Over Under Movies. Um, as usual, we are part of the Playlist uh, Podcast Network, which also includes a bunch of other podcasts like uh, our old uh, co-host uh, Eric McClanahan and the podcast uh, Adjuster Tracking that he does with uh, Joe Van Oppen. And also we have Bingeworthy and uh, I think what is it, the Indie Beat is another yep. one. Yep. Uh, so yeah, and then the regular Playlist Podcast. So we have a bunch that you can check out um, that you can uh subscribe on uh the playlist podcast itunes feed and you can also uh find us on uh, soundcloud and on the playlist.net and um as far as specifically over under movies is concerned um you can find us on facebook.com slash over under movies and also you can find us on twitter uh at over under movies and just you know send us give us a comment and let us know how we're doing, uh, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, and all that good stuff. And uh, uh, before we before we get off, uh, I would like to tease our uh, next episode, which is going to be another one of our uh, guest episodes. We're gonna grab another writer from the uh, the playlist to to bring his picks over. And um, so the, our next episode, we're gonna have Kanji Fujishima. Um, He's a critic and contributor for the playlist as well as Paste Magazine. Uh, we're going to have his picks, and it's going to be an interesting, probably a, a heated and contested uh, discussion because his underrated pick is going to be, uh, in my opinion, uh, probably the the one uh, great American masterpiece of the last decade. Uh Paul Thomas Anderson's uh, "There Will Be Blood." That's an over, his, overrated. You, you that's said overrated. Un, you said overrated. Oh yeah, overrated. <laughs> it's it's wishful thinking. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's going to be his overrated pick. So that's going to be kind of a uh, interesting heated discussion, I think. And uh, his underrated is going to be Martin Scorsese's "The Aviator." Uh, so yeah, check out that episode when that uh, comes along in about a couple weeks. Uh, but until then. Um, I'd like to say uh, goodbye and thank you for listening. Uh, this is Oktaege Kozak. I'm a film critic and contributor to um, Paste Magazine. That's my new spot and really excited for uh, about writing there. And as well as uh, the playlist.net, uh, DVD Talk, and BayasParada.com. And I'm Ryan Oliver. You can find me here on the playlist at Over Under Movies as well as the Playlist Podcast. Thank you. And uh, as always, do not forget the tartar sauce.